Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, happy Easter. Welcome back to Romaniacs, the podcast that would love to give 600 grand to a 22-year-old fashion student but can't afford to. I'm Dorian Linsky. I've got two of our regulars with me. Ros Taylor is the research manager at the LSE's Truth, Trust and Technology Commission. She's ex-Guardian. She also works on the LSE's Invaluable Brexit blog. Hi, Ros. How are you? Very well, thank you, Dorian. You've been fixated on whale meat regulations this week. <laughs> why? Fixated? Why, why is this particularly... Fixation, that's a harsh word to use, Dorian. Well, basically, I was uh, hanging out on Twitter, uh, as I occasionally do, and um, I was looking at some of the dark ads that people have dug up that appeared on Facebook during the EU referendum campaign, because, you know, again, that's of constant interest to me. And it turns out that they ran quite a few um, ads on uh, whale meat, which you might not think was your first uh, top choice of, you know, reasons to leave the EU. But it turns out that for vote leave, uh, it was a a pretty tough targeted the campaign uh, that they ran very uh, briefly, where they uh, pointed out that EU regulations mean that if you're in the EU, you have to let whale meat pass through your ports. And there was a pig picture of a poor whale being eviscerated by some you know, people prior to being eaten. And you can imagine this is going to be a pretty emotive topic because we all love whales. Um, I remember, you know, well, my mum, my mum used to say that when when uh, she when she was eating Russian food in the in the late forties and early fifties, uh, they had to eat whale meat, and she never enjoyed doing that. And I'm sure I wouldn't either. So anyway, <laughs> briefly. This this is clearly quite an emotive thing, which um, Vote Leave ran on Facebook. I don't know how many times it was served. I don't know how many people saw it. But I think we can agree, can't we, that it never became part of the main campaign. I don't think there was an opportunity for these claims to be dis- debated, discussed in a wider forum. Mm. And this for me is very interesting because it's an example of how micro-targeting works in elections and why it's problematic. Now, on the one hand, you could say they're just ser- serving these ads about whale meat. Possibly, who knows, to people who are particularly keen on environmental issues and animal rights would have been perfectly possible to do that via Facebook. Uh, But on the other hand, it means you don't get the chance to debate this publicly. And the whole point of a referendum campaign is that you can get the issues out there and uh, talk about them and find out what the right answer is. And that never really happened when it came to whale meat. Hmm. So So. so that's basically sort of micro-targeting in a nutshell. Pretty much, and I, I would, I would be very surprised if they weren't micro-targeted. But uh, who knows at this, at this stage? We're going to talk more about Cambridge Analytica later. Uh, also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of Politics UK. Hello. <laughs> so you sound like you're Politics UK. Hi, Ian. You've, you've dared to say something extremely nice about Tony Blair this week. What's, uh, what's oh, he done did, to, yeah, no, what's he done to steal your heart? It's very hard for me to say nice things about Tony Blair, but I spent most of my sort of, well, most of my sort of young life and definitely in, in university sort of fighting most of the stuff that he was doing, especially on civil liberties in Iraq. And, you know, he did another speech 
he then did what I thought was a really good interview on Newsnight, where he raises all these points, he says all of this stuff, and at the end of it, they're like, yeah, but you're Tony Blair, you're not allowed to say anything, are you? Because people just think that, you know, you're responsible for the deaths of loads of children. And he had to sit there and just, he just sort of think, like, and it, it is just twataboutery of, like, the highest order. It's just got no consequence to anything that he has said right there. And instead, you just get this blockage which comes from, yeah, the thing that keeps on reminding me of is something that you said in the previous episode, actually, Dora, which is basically this idea that because I don't agree with this person on one thing, I'm unable to say that I agree with them on anything at all. And that seems to me this incredibly pernicious form of puritanism. So, of course, so I sort of was going to bed, and I just said, actually, you know, I think he's being perfectly decent and, and sort of, you know, principled here. And, like, you know, you lose two days to people sending you photos of dead Arab children going, why did you kill Arab children? Like, what, what, you know, what, what is it in your character that makes you want to kill with these children? So I think, well, this doesn't seem to me to be a particularly proportionate response to anything that I said, but nevertheless, that is the game that we are currently in. Well, I suppose for the, new, for the Newsnight interviewer, whoever that was, that, I mean, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you're bringing up within the actual interview, mm. uh, questioning the legitimacy of, of what they can say, they go, well, people are going to think this. And it's like, well, people are... Definitely going to think this because you've just brought it up again. Hmm. And then you have to go get into the principle of should one 15 years after the Iraq war. Like, I don't know what I don't know what the equivalent is. I wonder whether it's like in the early 80s, if people were still talking to, uh, you know, some of the architects of the Vietnam War and they were just going, I think this about, you know, the trade deficit or whatever. And they're going, yeah, but Vietnam, like, I don't know if that happened. Hmm. I can't think of other examples where it just seems to be. You're surely entitled, aren't you, to come to a judgment on his judgment by Mm. virtue of the things that have taken place. And you're, of course, going to think, have you always been straight with people? Did maybe you not being straight with people over Iraq lead to people having a complete crisis of confidence in government information when it came to the Brexit vote? There's a bunch of stuff you can say that you can start linking this. People know all of that stuff. This idea that he's somehow not allowed to speak, which I thought was where he was quite elegant to sort of say, look, you cannot shut me up like you do not have to listen yeah, but yeah. I still have the right to speak and to say my mind on this I look at him I look at John Major I look at all these other people that I just used to think were the most dreadful dreadful people and I just sort of think they gain nothing by putting themselves into the position that they're in right now except for a bunch of people who have never had their moral purity tested in any way shape or form apart from sitting on the other end of a fucking laptop typing incessantly their own judgement at the world to suddenly say well you're not allowed to talk because I once disagreed with you about something and that just I'm sorry yeah. it seems to be utterly base and simple I, I can't disagree with you there, you know, I, I agree with you. But I think it's interesting with with Blair, why it happens more with Blair. And I think it's because it was partly a reaction against the whole 97 lab, new Labour loving. And mm. so much was promised. And then it all went sour for some people. And it's partly then the, you know, the new direction that Labour t- has taken in, in, in very recent years that has enabled people to come out and be completely honest about how angry they felt about Iraq and how much, how ignored they felt about Iraq. Yeah. Um, but it is—it's a disappointment, I think. It's you—it's you, it's, I believed in you, and then look what you did. And it is, it is interesting because um, I'm always surprised by how many people who you'd think would be impressed by New Labour's record on the end, things like the NHS, um, have just counts for nothing, absolutely nothing. Well, if you—I've um, noticed being on the internet that um, if you if you suggest that somebody is being um, uh, anti-Semitic, for example. Um, or as I did suggest, <laughs> someone was beneath contempt. Someone will go ad hominem, uh, as if like you're not allowed to sort of, you know. It's like if I say I think Donald Trump is uh, an ignorant racist. It's like you could go ad hominem, but it's just it's not going to stop me from saying it. I'm not in a debating. That's a debating society kind of idea. 
Um, and yet the same people with Blair, it's literally ad hominem because it's literally going, mm. not I'm attacking you because of this one thing you said. It's like I will ignore everything you say, the legitimacy of any argument you ever make because of who you are. Uh and I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some category of people I would put in that if I think that there are people I think who behaved so appallingly that I'm not really interested in their hmm. their sort of views on anything else. It just it just seems there's a weird exceptionalism around Blair. Yeah. I mean, there's a version of it with Clegg and tuition fees, maybe. But I don't know. I, I just I don't I don't think this is what human lives are like. I don't know what this politics is like, where you're just like you're off, you're benched forever yeah, exactly, and you can't yeah. speak ever again and it doesn't help I mean to have it around that culture where everything's swirling around with the anti-Semitism stuff which has been very hard to swallow this week I have to say we published a piece earlier by someone sort of going this is how anti-Semitism in Labour works and instantly all of the responses were of exactly the type that he talked about in the piece to say well look the first thing you'll be told is that this is about Zionism or anything else the first, second thing you'll be told is that this is about shutting up criticism of Israel mm. Israel hasn't even been fucking raised like I mean it's got nothing to do literally the word isn't even said and out it comes and it comes just this absolute sewer online so I have to say this week has been a particularly difficult week to stare at the internet and oh, I've, I've yeah. very much wanted it's, to detach myself from it no it's it, it, it's like it's 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 just been really, really sickening because the, num- the number of people denying a problem are in, in ways that prove the problem. <laughs> and so it becomes almost impossible. It's like kind of, yeah, it's like grappling with smoke because mm. you're just like, you're literally, you, anything you say to them, you're literally contradicting yourself. Anything you say to them, they'll, uh, they'll come back with another bullshit reason. And it's just this, this whole thing of like where you try and argue in good faith. And if you find one person that goes, okay, fair point, but what about this? Or I didn't realise that, that, that people with um, large noses uh, sitting over a map of the world uh, cackling over money beneath a Freemason symbol was an anti-Semitic image. But now you've pointed it out. And it's OK, maybe you didn't. But now you've pointed it out. I've noticed that. But once you point it out, then they start, they come for another excuse. And it's just like the, the, the absolute dishonesty mm. and the embarrassment that I feel as somebody who very much lab- wants Labour to do well. And I just can't, I, you know, get get ousting these people. I can't wait for zero tolerance to kick in <laughs> because they're like poison. Anyway. <laughs> I'm glad we started off on a light note. Later in the show, it's 12 months to Brexit Day, or it's supposed to be, as we set the doomsday clock for the Brexpocalypse. What should we look out for? Plus, the ongoing Cambridge Analytica Facebook mess after whistleblower Christopher Wiley told the Commons Culture Committee that vote leave cheating may have swayed the referendum result. Is the Brexit vote tainted? What does Jeremy Corbyn's sacking of Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary Owen Smith mean? And is Keir Starmer more concerned about Labour not splitting than the UK leaving the EU? And after the Great Northern March in Leeds last weekend, should Remainers be playing the you didn't see our demo on the Buyers BBC game? These things and more after a brief message from Roz. If you're enjoying the show and you want to help spread the word of our treachery, malfeasance and general anti-democratic sabotage, why not tell your friends? This week we want to experiment with an old-fashioned listener drive. We're asking you to share the Apple Podcasts link to Romaniacs with like-minded friends. Yes, we know they're a big data giant, but some 70% of our listeners are on Apple Podcasts. Just go to the Apple Podcasts app and email the link to a friend or two with an encouraging note. Whatever that means. If every listener does this, we could well double our listener figures. Watch out, Ed Miliband. We're coming for you. And of course, you can always help Romaniacs by pledging us a small amount on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Backers get mugs, T-shirts and bags and, of course, advance tickets for upcoming Romaniacs Live shows, as well as exclusive recordings of our first show. 
Find out more at Romaniacs.com or go to patreon.com slash Romaniacscast. Join in and own the Ramon. Okay, according to our studies of the data you've freely shared with us without realising it, you're interested in Brexit news. (laughs) Here is some Brexit news. (laughs) Firstly, the Cambridge Analytica scandal continues to snowball. There was an emergency commons debate about the allegations that vote leave broke election spending rules. Even Brexiter Frank Field called for the full weight of the law to fall on offenders. You're in a stop clock. <laughs> when a volunteer called Shamir Sani revealed that Vote Leave had used the Youth Leave organisation Believe to channel £650,000 to data miners via that Harry Potter fashion student Darren Grimes, Sani's reward was to be outed as gay against his will by a former partner who is now working for Theresa May. Whistleblower Christopher Wiley, formerly of Cambridge Analytica, told the Commons Culture Committee, It is completely reasonable to say there could have been a different outcome of the referendum had there not been, in my view, cheating referring to the role of Canadian firm Aggregate IQ, which he called a franchise of Cambridge Analytica and worked with Vote Leave. He also told the Frontline Club this week that Cambridge Analytica panicked because this was the first campaign they'd worked on when they couldn't leave the country immediately afterwards. (laughs) According to Wiley, Dominic Cummings, head of Vote Leave, said its targeted online advertising campaign had made all the difference to the result. And in other tech bro news, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg has refused to answer a summons to the Commons but will personally select someone to come instead. Personally. Uh, Roz, this is very complicated. And I think, uh, I think as Hugo Rifkin pointed out on Twitter, that it's so complicated that some people just don't get what the fuss is about because it's not like, it's not like this obvious sort of smoking gun. Yeah. Um, can you sort of break down what the, uh, the allegation of illegality is here, I suppose? Okay, well, the basic um, problem is, well, the problem as Vote Leave saw it at the time, I think, was that um, they were the designated leave campaign. You may recall that uh, before the elect- uh, the, the referendum, there was a decision made um, by the Electoral Commission about who should campaign uh, to, st- to remain, which was a stronger in, and who should campaign to leave. And there was a bit of competition between an organisation called Grassroots Out and Vote Leave and um, Leave.e. You and vote leave one. Now, what that means in uh, practical terms when it comes to a referendum is that that decides um, who can spend the money, who can spend the public money on the uh, on the on the campaign. Now, clearly, this is a bit limiting, and uh, there were all kinds of complaints from vote leave, in particular that the Remain campaign got to send a leaflet uh, from the government and went through everybody's doors and they said that's not fair. But the uh, allegation here of what happened is that Vote Leave worked too closely, more than is permitted in electoral law, too closely with other Leave organisations like Believe. And they did things like share offices, share servers, always in contact with each other, so that, uh, in effect, they were able, because of money being spent uh, by those organisations, they were able to um, boost their own campaign. So that gave Vote Leave an unfair advantage. And does this mean... I mean, you can sort of see an unfair advantage, and if that's illegal, then then mm-hmm. so be it. Yeah. Um, but the claims that the result is tainted and that the activities of Cambridge Analytica and Aggregate IQ um, made the difference between winning and losing, mm. uh, how how strong a claim is that? That's... Uh, it's always going to be impossible, basically, to 
um, know whether it swung the campaign. Uh, what we do know about the referendum campaign is that quite a lot of people didn't make up their minds on how to vote until the week before the, the vote. So the campaigns were hugely important in swaying public opinion. And particularly things like the um, bus, the £350 million for the NHS bus and, and the emphasis on Turkey and so on, the switch in vote leaves tactics towards the end of the campaign undoubtedly had an impact. Um, whether uh, they reached sufficient people through social media to swing the vote whom otherwise, who otherwise they would not have been able to reach without the involvement of these extra organisations is always going to be a moot point. I think we can say very safely say it's tainted. Um, it's the the problem here more than anything else is that electoral law currently is unfit for purpose, and the way that the when that when these laws were drawn up, there was no notion of anything like social media, and you could very much control the nature of a referendum or election campaign. What that meant was that you could ensure there were set piece debates through the BBC and and ITN and so on, which all happened, and you could control how information got to people by deciding uh, what information went through their letterboxes, the addresses on the bottom. You had to you know you have to explain who's who's uh, uh, the electoral agent is. All these things were designed for a different era when it was impossible to micro-target people on social media in this way. And one of the big things that I think will come out of these revelations is uh, a change in the law that tries to get to grips with this problem. And is there, a, as listener Joe Muggs sort of argued, said that physics had a moral reckoning when nuclear weapons arrived and they really had to sort of confront what they had done which had led to this um, and Brexit Trump and, and Russian propaganda is that a similar moral reckoning for for sort of data science and the companies that um, that collect our data because it, I mean obviously you've, you've seen this enormous almost sort of pent-up emotional backlash to mm. Facebook mm. you know particularly if you download as I did the data that they've got on you and you're just and it was like oh my god I had no idea you have all of my phone numbers yeah. Um, so it seems like a lot of stuff is swimming around, which is going to. Do you think, as well as changing electoral law, that it's going to? There's going to have to be a fundamental rethink of 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 how we handle data, because if those big companies are losing the faith of their users then it's not going to be tenable. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've thought about big data in terms of advertising. And when you think about it purely in terms of commercial advertising, it's not so much of a problem because it's hard to have a problem with being, you know, uh, shown ads by an animal charity because Facebook knows that you are susceptible to, uh, to, to a particular kind of animal, for example. When it comes to... When it, when it gets applied to politics, when it gets applied to... Um, fed in and uh, to the way you make political decisions and emotions that you have and preferences you have are played upon very deliberately in order to push you towards per, uh, particular decisions, that's when it becomes difficult. And I think that people have not yet caught up, academics included, have not yet caught up with the fact that big data would be deployed in this way for, for a purpose that was other than commercial. I have to say, I find it very satisfying that... Um Facebook shot back at Carol Kudwala quite hard, right, and threatened the Guardian with sort of legal action and blah, blah, blah. So as of this morning, they're down $95 billion on the basis of her story. And uh, so, I mean, a friend of the show, Nick Goward, just put it as, do not fuck with Carol, which seems like a good definition. Yeah. But it's also a quite useful reminder, given that this is so much about sort of fake news and we're so lost in that. 
of that old sort of Warren Ellis. It's not old. It's just because if you're a comics reader, it's old. And for everyone else, it's absolutely unheard of by anyone. But <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the phrase of like, you know, journalism is a gun. And if you aim it right, you can blow a kneecap off the world. And that's essentially where the story is right now. However, it did get lost in the maelstrom... maelstrom... Yeah. I can't say foreign words. Yeah, because the, I preferred the first version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. um, so of, of the sort of remain... Leave fight in a way that I think is probably is, is quite dispiriting, frankly. So I've seen an awful lot of Remainers jumping on this utterly prematurely, start saying, right, that's it, the whole thing's cancelled, the whole thing's off, and we're not really listening. When you just think, like, this goes back to that old thing of it's an advisory referendum, all these sort of quick cheats to just get rid of the situation you don't like. And that is, it, it's not credible to start saying where we are right now, certainly before any investigation has taken place, that that should be the outcome. And I think it makes it harder if one was to eventually try to make that argument to to do so when you are doing it right now in such an obviously self-interested political way. The Leave side is is just probably more outrageous overall. We're just come, constantly coming out and going, you guys are just trying to cheat. You're just trying to cheat. There's absolutely nothing going on here at all. And how dare you say that people are so stupid that they're just moved by a few articles. And you think like, well, hey, we're talking about comparatively small numbers of people. The whole purpose of this technology is to shift small numbers yeah. of voters. And B, just because of your sides on this result doesn't mean that you have put yourself in a position where you're uninterested in whether electoral law is being broken or whether we need additional laws to cater for the things that are going on. That just seems such an appalling status to have found yourself in, and yet that is exactly where they are. But there, no, there is an incredible dishonesty about Are you suggesting that the average Leave voter is so, you know, mm. ignorant and gullible? Yeah. And it's like, no, because that's not how elections are decided elections most of the time except when you know there's sort of rare occasions where you have landslides they mostly are decided in you know by these small margins by a number of marginal seats by you know like the last US election or whatever and when you're dealing with those kind of numbers it's like well yeah and you know these factors do come into play are they enough to explain why millions and millions of people voted a certain way no but might they explain how that final one or two million the tip the balance did mm. You know, it's just like I'm so sick of dishonesty on all sides and just this pathetic sort of game playing where it's just it's this, you know, reaching to your bag for the latest little sort of tawdry yeah, exactly. ploy yeah. to well, kind of, you know, to prove a point. But there's no honesty behind it. I mean, one of the consequences, I think, of this micro-targeting has been to it has it has made it even more difficult to work out why people voted for Brexit. Now, I have... Uh, commissioned and edited a lot of pieces about Brexit and a lot of different explanations for why people voted for Brexit. And they vary from uh, the obvious ones that you'd think of immediately, like immigration, to the um, NHS promise, uh, all across to a particular uh, demographics in particular areas of the UK being particularly badly hit by Chinese steel imports. Whale meat? Uh, whale meat. I have not commissioned a piece <laughs> okay. on yet. I should have done, Fucking clearly. Whales. <laughs> Oh, Ian. Ian. <laughs> I don't know where that goes. It's Brexity Wales. <laughs> That's Wales with an H, listeners, in Wales. Now, um, but the, the problem then is that you, you cannot decide why people voted for Brexit if they if we did not have and we did not have an open fight as it were during the election campaign that got all the issues that were pertinent that were important out on the table and discuss them properly and if you are targeting people in a very specific way it's going to be even more difficult to work out what they wanted from Brexit and therefore to for Theresa May to say oh well actually people did did not care about being in the singles market slash customs union slash uh, ECJ slash any, any of the other 
red lines that have been that have been set up. We just don't know these things. We're not. We, the issue has not been resolved, and micro-targeting, in my view, is one of the reasons why. But, but this stuff. I mean, this stuff. Presumably, there's a reason why people spend large amounts of money. Uh, on on advertising, on on micro-targeting. And and obviously there are these old tweets and articles in which, you know, Isabel Oakeshott and Aaron Banks, you know, mention Cambridge Analytica. There is a reason why these companies are employed. And suddenly it's like, because this one sort of seems to be... I mean, the Obama campaign, for example, used, you know, all all above board as far as I'm aware. But but they kind of were very proud of the fact that by kind of... by this really kind of getting it down to a a molecular level and sending different messages to different people, you know, was a huge reason why he won in, I'm not sure if it's the first one or or 2012. Um, And now it's just suddenly like, oh, no, it doesn't work at all. People are are unswayed by any of this. And it's like, well, you just spunked millions then, didn't you? Why why do we spend money on anything if everybody just sits there in the comfort of their own homes without any external stimuli and makes up their own mind. Same argument you see for the press and private schools all the time. You always get the journalists sort of, you know, writing all the time going, oh, absolutely, we're pushing this editorial line. And then when someone pushes them on it, they're like, oh, no, but nobody listens to us. Nobody cares what we say. And exactly the same for private schools. They're like, absolutely, oh, it doesn't make any difference at all. They're still completely fair in the way things work. And you think, well, why is it exactly that you're spending £20,000 a year in order to send your child to this thing which is so magnificently ineffective? Um... And yeah, and so talking of sordid tactics, the the outing of Shamir Shah seemed fucking bleak. Yeah. So I mean, that is really possibly a. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like I mean, this is the thing. I, I you know I actually wrote down what Theresa May said in the Commons the other day in response to it. Uh, it is astonishing. I have to say, uh, you know, I was actually even feeling a little bit warm towards her this week because I thought she dealt with the Russian thing very, very well. I thought she'd come across like the kind of prime minister that we expected we were going to get rather than the one that we actually did get. Mm. Um, and that wave of sort of solidarity and of expulsions of diplomats across the world I thought was really impressive and a sign that she'd been doing some good work somewhere behind the scenes. Then out she comes with this torrid horror. She gets asked about this. This email, the email that was sent by, um, by her political secretary, by Stephen Parkinson, I've seen the email. It says official in capital letters at the top of the email. Then for number 10 to then come out and go, it's a personal statement. You just think, like, well, if it's a personal statement, don't put official in capital letters at the top of the email. It's being sent out by Downing Street. In the Commons, she's asked about this. She says, for some people, for some people, being outed as gay is difficult because of their family circumstances. What I want to see is a world where everybody can be confident in their sexuality. And you just think the brazen, outrageous hypocrisy of that. Really, really very low moral standards indeed being exhibited by the prime minister there. From the, I hope she doesn't Google Conservative Party and gay rights because she's in for a hell of a shock. Meanwhile, back at Labour HQ, Jeremy Corbyn continued his policy of pushing through major moves right after Romaniacs has recorded our show. In this case, sacking Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary Owen Smith on a Friday night, when all sensible people are in the pub, for the crime of floating a second referendum. Smith later said he was fired for expressing views shared by the overwhelming majority of Labour members, which is simply true. This appeared to put Labour back to square one in the endless tussle between the remainers of the PLP and membership, and indeed voters, and the Lexters in the leadership. Keir Starmer, formerly the captain sensible of Corbyn's cabinet, got into a mire when he said that the priority was keeping Labour from splitting over Brexit, not Brexit itself. Fortunately, as we alluded to, Labour was rescued from this embarrassing situation by a massive row about anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> so, whew, dodged a bullet there. Um, Ian, Ian, when that when uh, Owen Smith was was fired, I kept hearing that um, Corbyn had no choice um, because. 
he broke shadow cabinet response, you know, collective responsibility. Mm. Um, I'm I'm wary when anyone ever says a politician literally didn't have a choice. Um, do you think he did have a choice? Was there another way he oh, could have played this? I mean, he's, uh, he seemed to find that he had a choice last November when Diane Abbott said the same thing using almost exactly the same formulation. He seemed to have the, a choice when he himself in January refused to rule it out over and over again on television. He seemed to have a choice this weekend when Keir Starmer said that he understood those who'd want to vote. He seemed to have a choice when Tom Watson this weekend, three times on three separate programmes, said that he didn't see that there should be any reason against it. Over and over again, he seems to have a fucking choice. It's just that all of a sudden, when the guy's running, the guy who ran against him says this stuff, then it's like, well, you've got to go now. You know, this is the, this is the shadow Northern Ireland secretary. And the whole of that article is saying, you know what this is? This is an, a catastrophe for Ireland in a way that it is. Anyone with any understanding of how things work on that border, with any understanding of the Good Friday Agreement, and with any understanding of history on that island, we tell you that this is the, one of the most catastrophic events that has happened since the end of the Troubles. Well, the most catastrophic event that's happened since the end of the Troubles. For him to express all of that, and then to say at the end, using the exact formulation which the leadership itself, including Starmer, including sort of Corbyn, including those people around them, were not ruling out, is, is just staggering. So I can't, I mean, just to say he had no choice. You look at the Tory front bench, the, the Tory front bench is like pick a policy. There's no, there's no consistency there at all. You can either have, the, the other day, Grayling is going out there saying we're not going to have any fucking borders at all. You know, you will let everything free, which doesn't seem to me to be the sort of nativist authoritarianism that you're getting from other parts of the, of the, of, of the Conservative Party. It's not as if there's any consistency there. And it's certainly like, not like you get any in, in, in Labour. So for them to now say, oh, well, you know, it's cabinet responsibility. And for it to be people online who spent most of the time talking about the way that Tony Blair controlled the Labour Party for his own view. And now to suddenly turn around and go like, oh, how naive of you to think that this isn't possible. It's just absolute nonsense of the highest order. Can I, can I do my usual thing now of trying to get inside Colt Corbyn's brain and failing? <laughs> At this point, I usually try to explain what, why he's done what he's done. And, and I, you know, God knows, I, it's usually... But there are two things, I think, two reasons why I think he felt he was able to do this. And one is that, firstly, uh, your average English person in particular does not care much about Northern Ireland. Uh, there was a poll out this week, mm. uh, depressingly, incredibly depressingly, yes. that said that if uh, Northern, losing Northern Ireland, as, you, as in, in the people sometimes tend to think of it, losing it from the United Kingdom, if that was the price of Brexit, uh, I think a third of people would be fine with that. Um, there are a lot of people in England who have never been to Northern Ireland and frankly um, do not remember the troubles and do not see it as an urgent problem that will affect them personally. The other reason why I feel that uh, he was able to get away with it was because um, Owen Smith himself has failed with membership. Now, it was interesting that it was Owen Smith that put his head above the parapet for this mm. because he has been comprehensively defeated by Corbyn. Uh, and while we know that the membership is anti-Brexit, we know that they are not pro-Owen Smith. Owen Smith, he has a very, very low profile uh, nationally as well. So I think he felt he was just phew, cannon fodder and that, frankly, nobody would be that bothered if, if, he, if he sacked him. And I think, to be honest, given how the anti-Semitism row has really taken off in the last few days and the Owen Smith issue has not, he made, from his point of view, the right decision. Well, I've heard it. There's a theory floating around that actually if Labour does not, um, does not do the right thing on Brexit by the lights of its members and voters, that it is going to get punished and that they're banking on the fact that they can just sort of keep calling it Tory Brexit 
and and sort of let it go, let it happen, but go, it's nothing to do with us. And there is a theory that actually there's going to be a wave of anger and that they're really banking on taking for granted the majority. I don't buy that. Which is astonishing. Because where, where what... do those voters go? Because, frankly, the Lib Dems are not offering them an attractive alternative at the moment. And in particular, I think, in the local elections coming up, and in London in particular, uh, Labour will do very well because the Lib Dems are so enfeebled. And I just don't... And I, people will, will, will just not see an alternative, but they will want to vote. So I think, I think they won't lose out as a result. That's my hunch. There so there'll be um, no cost for backing Brexit. Labour will have no cost for backing Brexit then. So if there's no cost, why would Corbyn ever change his mind? I don't think he will change his mind. Well, I mean, there is, of course, you know, an imaginary fantasy world where he really gives a shit about the working class. And in that case, he might think, well, you know, this is going to decimate jobs in manufacturing and agriculture. And that might not be the kind of thing that I've stood on this platform to achieve. But if we're not and we're in the real world where this great man of principle seems to operate to completely cynical tactical manoeuvres, then that might not be the case. Can we add something to this, which is actually that then in the in the sort of schizophrenic frenzy of Labour policies, a few days later, Keir Starmer comes out with one of the best Brexit policies I've seen since the referendum and certainly one of the best ones from Labour which is to say that he's going to introduce an amendment looking to specify and this is going to be to the withdrawal that's a form of great repeal bill that's currently going through Parliament to specify that Parliament gets to decide what happens if the motion is voted down at the end of the Brexit negotiations now that is really smart politics. It's the kind of politics that's thinking several moves ahead of where the government is, thinking where are we going to be in six months' time? Where are the sort of really sensitive areas of this? Where can we try and wrestle some control away from the government and especially from the Prime Minister? The Brexit Minister the other day was sort of saying, well, look, we will treat a vote against the motion as a de facto vote for no-deal Brexit. Now, that is not tolerable in any way, shape or form. It doesn't make any sense to say it's a meaningful vote and you would vote between no-deal and their-deal. Because, of course, if the choice is between no-deal and a-deal, you will always vote for the deal, no matter what that deal entails. It will always be better. In this scenario, that is Starmer being seriously, seriously smart. And of course, he does this like 12 hours after he says not just the, the stuff he said before, but also the stuff about the fucking passports. He's on, you know, the Sunday TV <laughs> going, oh, and by the way, I think we should make the passports in England. And you're like, oh, not you too, for heaven's sake here. Nevertheless, then comes out with this. So you're constantly bounced. It's like you're a ball on a squash court between like the idiocy on one side and then suddenly there's another bit of the party or in this case, another bit of Keir Starmer's brain, which does something incredibly intelligent and worthwhile and progressive. And then that bounces you back and you think, well, maybe there is hope. And, you know, that that is ultimately the real torture of the thing. But it's funny how Brexit has actually put me, I think I, I, the first time that I can remember where, where the politicians I like best on, on all sides are, are on the back benches. That if you believe in trying to stop Brexit, the action is on the back benches. You know, God bless, you know I, I do have a lot of time for, for, for Keir Starmer. Mm, me too. But obviously he's not as free as backbenchers are to just, you know, just to, to sort of say what they think and move towards stopping Brexit. So it's a really weird thing that the, the sort of the, the action is not really with the leadership on, the, on this issue. It's never a, it's never a good thing to say that all of the really exciting stuff is happening on the backbenches because it, it tends to suggest that party politics is in a terrible state. Basically, no, it's just like the cool party. It's like all the cool people are in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, talking of cool people, I went on the Great Northern March this week in Leeds. It was like a Romaniacs guest reunion. There were speeches from Lord Adonis, S.E. Grayling, Eloise Todd from Best for Britain, Sue from Remain in Spain. The whole band was back together <laughs> doing some of our old some of our old hits, such as NHS bus. <laughs> um, 
so I, I very much enjoyed the march. It was about 2,000 people. Uh, so not like a, a kind of a major thing, um, but very sort of inspiring. And I think the point was not to be the sort of mass movement, although I'm sure people wouldn't have said no to that, but to um, to kind of fire people up. There was a lot of practical advice on stage, which I found mm. really interesting. Like they've really got their plan together now, all these different kind of groups. There was a lot of coherence in the message. And there was a lot of like, OK, this is what we need to do. You need to go and, you know talk to your friends and relatives and mm. we need to kind of see the ground for if there is this people's vote um, but then afterwards there were complaints including from some of the speakers at the march that th there was a BBC blackout and why wasn't it mm. you know why wasn't it in the news and my instinct because I'm so used to hearing that from cranks <laughs> was to think are we really going to go down this path because also then you've got to think is the BBC deliberately suppressing news of anti-Brexit protests to what? To serve a pro-Brexit message. It's always mm. like the implication. It's like, okay, if there's a blackout, why is there a blackout? What do you think of this argument when it's made by kind of our side? I guess, full disclosure, I have freelance with BBC. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, and in a very junior capacity, did some work, uh, done some work for them. And having had a bit of insight into how the BBC works, I think this partly comes out of the desperate need uh, for the BBC to see, be seen to be impartial. And I don't think there there is any suggestion they are doing it to, uh, they're not reporting on Brexit marches from a pro-Brexit agenda. I think, on the other hand, they are under a lot of pressure from both right and left, from both pro-Brexit and anti-Brexit. And that is hell to try and balance. And sometimes they will come down on one side or the other and many people will say it's a wrong decision. Now, I stress again, I am not in any way speaking on behalf of the BBC and I do not have a special insight into, uh, in, in, into what uh, the, the news editors at the time were thinking. But it is true that Twitter will give you, if you are looking down your Twitter feed and you are anti-Brexit, you are probably following lots of people who are anti-Brexit and they're all tweeting about how great the march is and your banners and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, why the hell isn't this on the BBC front page? And you have... A bit of a skewed view, therefore, of um, w what uh, people who aren't aware of the march are seeing, but also the relative importance of what's going on in the news that day. Now, I do think, actually, personally, that the, this, these marches were big enough. I think the fact they were in lots of different places hmm. um, means that their impact was a bit um, dissipated. Had it been one big march and there had been the same number of people all together in one place, then I think you would have hit some kind of figure <laughs> that would have meant it was covered. But because they were in different places, it didn't work well, quite it was like covered. that. Yeah, it was it was covered to us, but not not it wasn't you know on the front page um, while it was happening. But I think the the, the I mean the, I saw similar uh, criticisms of uh, Christopher Wiley's evidence mm, exactly. in the Commons, um, and I was like, oh, that's a bit odd. And then I looked, and I think I saw the tweet. It was two hours since the tweet, and it was on the website. It was on the front page of the website. It had been talked about on PM. Then it was on the six o'clock news. The, mm. You know the Radio Four Six good news. So so yeah. often when you go, why isn't this thing being covered? And I always do a quick check. Yeah, and it, it is being covered. They it, were slow. They with, are with slow. The Wiley thing. I mean, they yeah. were especially because you know was it, was it, was it, was it all in those couple of hours? Everywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
you know, if, if it's on, Can- if the Canadians are covering it yeah. before you, <laughs> there's a yeah. problem. Right, exactly. Okay. It was slow. It was covered and it was slow. You're right. It was, it was late, frankly. And I'm not quite sure why that was. Maybe they didn't have uh, somebody there. And that was the reason. I think you know, it, it's a, there's a bigger interesting question, actually, which is who are marches for? Are they for the people on the march mm. or are they for the TV cameras to show the people who aren't on the march what was happening? And I'm wondering, actually, I think I think this one was for the people on the march because mm. it was the it was the, the rally. The speeches went of quite a long time. It was longer than the march. And they were really important. And like I said, they were really pragmatic. And I think it was about getting people together and giving them a sense of common purpose and going kind of, you know, go back to your constituencies <laughs> and prepare for victory mm. kind of vibe. Um, not everything is meant to be. Um, not everything is meant to be spectacle. And there you do get these these marches, like, say, the Women's March, which really is about spectacle. You know, among other things, it's also about solidarity and community and stuff. But, I mean, it was it was really important that they got reported. I don't know what difference, even if there's been a big news story, I don't know what difference that would have made out in the country, shifting even opinion. Even I, when it happens, it doesn't matter. I mean, I remember on the, on the Iraq marches, not just the big one, but all the ones leading up to it or afterwards. I mean... All we would do is complain that they kept on saying that there was only 70,000 when, in fact, we thought there was like 150,000. You know, there's always something else to complain about, about the way stuff is covered. Because, you know, British media is terrible at covering demonstrations and protests. It doesn't really consider them any kind of remotely important part of the game. And when it does cover them, it's because, as in the case of sort of the poll tax or sort of the anti-capitalist protests from like the 90s and the noughties, it's because they turn violent. Or actually some of the sort of countryside alliance stuff outside of Parliament. If it turns violent, then they cover it. And so there's it's annoying because they build an Incentive, which is not likely to be taken up in Remain marches, which are overwhelmingly middle class and extremely. I saw a polite. sign that said, "I predict a riot," and I was like, "I bet you don't." I'm not here. Like, this is like the nicest march you could possibly go on. I know. I love. I love the uh, Remain marches I've been on. It's just you feel completely safe taking your kids with you. You don't. Need, you, you like is... the black block are not going to turn up, no. are they? And go stay in the customs union and like smash windows. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, anyway. there's nothing to be gained by going down this road. It is a terrible road. People are now talking about the next protest should start outside of the BBC. That is a shit idea. Going out every day and having some, non, you know, it's, it's a terrible idea. Where there are problems, and, we, and it's clear, and I thought by far the best uh, person we've had speaking on this on the show was James O'Brien, who also wrote a piece, I think, for The Statesman this mm. week, talking about their failings. And he's spot on there. It's aversion towards any kind of technical detail or any kind of expert advice that needs constantly balanced with some buffoon who knows nothing against someone who's actually spent seven years looking into something. And the way that can be used by groups to muddy the waters of messaging, to pretend the world is actually paradoxically much more complicated than it really is. And in a way that doesn't serve to help the public. It's patronising viewers and having a really quite fossilised, primitive sense of how balance operates. These are the problems. That means that the BBC is having a terrible Brexit. Really, really bad. But it's not because there is some kind of conspiracy to support Brexit in the BBC. Quite and frankly, 80% of the people in the BBC as individuals would be Remain voters. I would be surprised if the number was that low. Mm. It is not that. It is, it is something actually deeper and more systemic in the way the BBC operates. And often it is fear because uh, the BBC is, yes, um, yeah. uh, depends on the licence fee. It depends on the goodwill of politicians. Um, there are always people in the Conservative Party, but also Jeremy Corbyn himself recently, who are prepared to th- consider cracking down on the BBC in some way and that makes people that that it understandably um, makes people very very cautious and often over cautious but I think the sorry go on and I was gonna say, I, have, I have enormous frustrations with uh, with the BBC over I think the things that, that were in that James O'Brien piece you know mm. I just think they have they have utterly failed 
uh, on many on many fronts, and certainly with the false equivalent, certainly giving a mouthpiece to people that turn out to be fascists, turn out to be. Who <laughs> <laughs> they uh, knew to be fascists going Prove in. themselves yeah. unambiguously to be, um, I don't know what word that was, <laughs> unambiguously uh, to, to be fascists. Um, but I, I soon, when I see this kind of line, and I think, you know what, this is what I expect from kind of Squawkbox, my nemesis. <laughs> and I just, I just feel like remains have to be a little bit smarter and to rise above. And like I said, to recognise what the what I, to my mind, was the real purpose yeah. of that demonstration. Um, and that's that's the real work that, that that we have to do. It's not basically people looking on the six o'clock news and seeing a march and going, "I've changed my mind. We must stay in." I don't think that's how it's going to work. Anyway, get out your calendars, put a big red circle around March the 29th, 2019, because hallelujah, in exactly 12 months, Britain will take a bold leap into the unknowable parallel universe that is a two-year transition period. <laughs> in the wise and fitting words of Swedish soft rockers Europe, the band of ever closer union, we're starting the final countdown. <laughs> 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 Thank you, Europe. <laughs> well, what's going to happen? We thought we should set out the key moments in the rest of our final year so far in the European Union. What do we need to look out for? When will it happen? And what is likely to go disastrously wrong? Rosny, and you can tell us what's happening and when. Firstly, <laughs> this one's for Ian. Trade talks! <laughs> <laughs> the EU greenlit them as part of the transition deal. Uh, when will they start and who's going to get the first go at Brexit Britain? Pretty soon. So, there's, I mean, I think where we're heading to is, is kind of the plus. That's the sort of terminology for this stuff, which basically means a goods-only deal, um, similar to CETA, which is the deal that Canada has with the UK. Um, the plus refers to what are the things that you chuck in there that aren't in the Canada deal. Now, there's a bit of precedence for a little bit of services in stuff. The EU's already said they'll do something on aviation. That's Everyone wants that, and it would be pretty fucking catastrophic if we didn't get it. It's probably going to be something like that on chemicals. There's a bunch of other areas where we're going to have to sign up to a much broader framework with them. Geographical indicators that you were talking about on uh, the... Oh, I've forgotten his name, Jay Rayner's show. Um, they'll be in there. State aid, which we talked about that upsets Corbyn so much, that'll be in there. These things to kind of lock Britain into at least the orbit of the EU so that we can't undercut them. We'd be considered a very different commercial partner to Canada on the other side of the world in that respect, even though most of the gains that we're getting are comparable to Canada's. I think, and this is controversial, lots of people don't agree with me on this, I think there'll be some kind of offer, minimal offer on uh, financial services. Uh, this is cherry picking, by the way. And, you know, every time the EU says they don't do cherry picking, it's bullshit because they do cherry picking all the time. They, the EEA arrangement is cherry picking. It doesn't include agriculture and fisheries. They, they do do that. Um, what they want is they want formal categories for how these things sort of operate. And they don't want to have another Swiss situation where it's a completely bespoke arrangement. I'm enjoying this, by the way. I'm getting to fill in an awful lot of geekery into this two minutes, and I'm enjoying every fucking second of it. Um, so what would the financial thing look like? I mean, probably if you looked at, for instance, the deal that uh, they did with the Americans on sort of equivalents uh, for derivatives trading and clearing houses, uh, that would probably be the sort of thing that might suggest how this kind of thing might work. It would be minimal, but of course it would be in Europe's interest because the capitals of Europe still want access to relatively cheap capital. And if you completely freeze out the city, the city of London, that's not going to take place. So you're going to get Canada with a plus on it, and maybe a plus and a half. Um, that still entails, you know, catastrophic damage to the British economy. That you're still looking at sort of 
Well, according to the government, 5% sort of drop in GDP over 15 years, and you would still not have a custom system that would be ready anywhere near in time for 2020, which is the end of 2020, which is when the transition period ends. So still very, very severe indeed. Um, but my guess is that that's the kind of direction that, that we're going in. It's very hard to see how it would be any more positive than that. And it would be hard to figure out why it would be too much worse. Ross, when are the red lines going to kick in? Which ones are going to be relevant? They're going to kick in very, very soon because what people often forget about the single market is that it is basically all about sticking to rules so that you can trade freely. It seems obvious, but it seems to be forgotten, especially by a lot of Brexiters. And so the question is, are we going to be prepared to to stick to EU regulations, to all the things that enable uh, our produce to be sold easily in the European Union? Or are we going to say, no, we're not going to meet those standards because we're going to hold out in the hope of being able to flog our produce to somewhere with different standards, like, for example, the US um, and to other emerging markets around the world. Which which exports are we going to privilege? Which ones are we going to give up on? Um, what things do we see ourselves exporting in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, which is what really, really matters here? What are we going to just say, well, I'm sorry, but you're the casualty of Brexit? And we're going to have to live with that. And that is, I think, where a lot of the toing and froing is going to happen. And a lot of it will be rooted in, as I say, how much we are prepared to sign up to EU law. You also see this in um, in the separate issue of security, for example, when we're thinking about whether it's going to be possible to stay in the European arrest warrant, which Theresa May is very keen to do. The real problem there is that she can't, she won't be allowed to stay in the European arrest warrant unless we guarantee to sign up to things like the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. Because you can't have, you can't be swapping suspects around in countries unless you're prepared to be sure, unless you're sure that the countries you're sending them to um, are going to treat them properly. And unless you have the legal framework that says, yeah, we're not going to, you know, shove this person in a, in a jail cell and not put, put them on trial, we're not going to, we're going to treat them properly. Unless you have that certainty, the EU will quite simply be unwilling to do those deals with us. And so things like the European Court of Justice and the role it plays in that and the issue of who resolves trade disputes uh, is, is going to, are going to become very important. So what do we think the biggest stumbling block in the talks is going to be? Ireland. Um, so the British offer is basically going to be that we will say, um, we would like a series of technical solutions. These will mostly take the form of trying to get rid of time and space. So um, that doesn't sound quite as crazy. It's not quite as crazy as it sounds. What you're going to want is you're going to want uh, major sort of people going over the border to be submitting their papers ahead of time into some kind of centralized system. And you would then try to create some kind of zone like they have in, in Norway, Sweden, 15 miles off from the border either way, where you can have checks outside of a specific point. And then you would say, well, your tax arrangements, a bit like if you're sort of self-employed with, with the HMRC, you would then do that later on on a quarterly basis or a monthly basis. You don't have to do it at the border. Um, you would then chuck in a bunch of tech. So you chuck in a bunch of cameras, you know, scanning vehicles and, and all of this. Now, all of these ideas, there's a paper that came out from Europe sort of called Border 2.0 that has some of these ideas in it. They're good ideas. They are ideas for reducing border infrastructure. What they are not is ideas for eradicating border infrastructure. That cannot be done. There's a bunch of ideas there. They can be implemented. They will not do the things that the government has committed itself to doing in that paper, so they will not work. It is completely pointless for them to keep on going on about it, even though we should do them 
of our own accord anyway. It's also worth adding that even if we were to pass through that and to do that, we've already got a customs update coming for 2020, which is itself running into it's, it's now it's got a sort of like an amber warning on it for being a bit of a mess. Now, that was just designed, I think, to take sort of 100 million customs declarations that now has to rise to 250 million uh, health warning on those figures. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're right. I'm not entirely sure. Um, so anyway, the infrastructure isn't there. We'd have to hire thousands of people. We'd need at least probably seven years to implement a system, anything like this. But anyway, it doesn't matter because it's not going to be accepted because it would still mean that there's a border, which is against the way the Brits and Europe have said they're going into that thing. So then the, the real crunch point is once you decide that's not possible, we're back to that backstop solution that we've talked about, which is basically staying in the single market in the customs union, at least for Northern Ireland. You know, arguably, you would say if you're not prepared to have something in the Irish Sea for the whole of the UK, and then you get your catastrophic toys out the pram moment from the Brexiters, and that's the real moment of tension and chaos in this whole thing that we just don't know who will buckle, how that will work. And timing-wise, when do we expect there to be uh, a deal that can be voted on in Parliament? October. And the, the understanding is that that would come to Parliament in the form of a motion. Uh, the commitment from the British government is that will happen before the European Parliament. So we'd be looking at October, November, which is why that Starmer amendment is so important, because actually if Parliament gets control over what happens if it's voted down, there's actually a fair amount of time. It's a good sort of five, six months to figure out what the fuck we do next. Because, of course, the, the sort of stop Brexit forces then want there to be, expect there to be uh, a referendum on the deal, yeah. you know, referendum what happens next within that window. If there was... It's pretty tight. A, you, I don't know what the legal mechanism for that would be, but you would have to, I think you would have to ask Europe for an extension. Now, Jean-Claude Piri, I think that's his name, who's the former sort of head of legal services in the EU, says he doesn't really think that an extension is viable in Europe. You need a uniform consent from all the members of the council, from all the other 27 member states to do that. He thinks that they will not do it because there's uh, European elections coming and they want the UK out by then. I've heard some people in Europe, I'm not going to argue with him because he is a legal big brain, this guy. So he would completely wipe the floor with me, whatever. However, I've heard lots of people in Europe suggest that that thing with the MEPs and the European elections isn't the most important thing in the world. And if it really came down to it, what is certainly the case and you do hear over and over is that in a scenario where a country was trying to work out whether it wanted to be in the EU, other, i.e., you have a referendum, I think it would be very unlikely that the EU would would resist an extension of at least another six months or a year or something in order for that to take place. Question then is, how do you get the legal mechanism for a referendum at all? I suppose you could do a quick flurry in Parliament, but again, that's just more time, and it's hard to see where that time is coming from. And if the, if the government loses a few rebel Tory MPs, either whether because it's, you know, Remainer rebels or sort of hardcore Brexiters... Um, then they're going to need sort of Labour vote. What does, um, what does Labour do? Can you see Labour whipping to support the bill? I, I maybe I'm a mad optimist, but I just, I just, I can't. I think it depends I think entirely. It'd be a colossal on, rebellion. It depends entirely on the state of public opinion at the time uh, whether they will be able to do that. Um, I think that that is what Corbyn is counting on. Uh, he is happy to Brexit. We know he doesn't have a problem with that personally, particularly with the speech he gave uh, uh, very recently when it, he set out why why he uh, would be happy to leave the EU. At the well, same plus time, he promised not a single job would be lost. So yeah, well that that's too. Fine. Yeah. Half yeah. Mowen's mess. <laughs> 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 
But you know, if if the price of power is is uh, at the very least staying in the single market to avoid the worst of um, um, a Brexit recession, which I think will start to take hold later this year and will start to feed into people's thinking a lot more, then I don't think he's already given way on the uh, customs union. It's not such a big step, I think, to stay in the single market, but particularly if it was still possible to negotiate some kind of concessions on freedom of movement, which is, I think, for um, for him for him a, a personal red line. But then, of course, you have to factor in the uh, DUP as well. And the DUP is a very uh, interesting problem, which uh, will it decide to prop up Theresa May? Um, or will it decide that... Um, actually it will just go all in in all and what what has it got to lose now they've had the, uh, the 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 large financial bung why not just go the whole way and stand up for your principles and um, bring down the government well mm. would a defeat would a defeat bring down the government do you think is there a chance that may could survive a defeat well, as Campbell made a pretty good shift of explaining why she might last week um i that's still not the expectation. The expectation was yeah. she would have to go. I mean, it's really hard to see any way that she wouldn't have to go. Whether the Tories can survive, especially because of the Fixed Term Parliament Act, that's the real sort of thing. But but see, I mean, you see, to me, it seems that the, whatever other uh, considerations there might be, that the, the defeat there, if you're if you're the Labour leadership, a defeat there to sort of bring down the government. Um, I mean, just that seems like a really that seems like a great window of opportunity there agreed if you're if you're you know if you're a normal opposition yeah like i mean this seems like that is the best way to mortally wound i think mortally wound the prime minister yeah before you know they have to call another election you know to force to force another election it just seems like the the obvious way to force a kind of and that's why I, I think know. so much will depend on the state of the polls. Um, will Cor- Corbyn be confident that he can win a general election? I think it's clear that Starmer wants Labour to vote down the motion. Yeah. He is now. He's, I mean, he keeps on introducing this test, the exact same benefits of the single market and the customs union, which we know will not be passed and literally couldn't be passed by any government, no matter how competent it was. And that's certainly not the government that we've got. Corbyn never mentions that test. I've, I haven't heard it come out of his mouth. Anything. I mean, it must have at some point, but I haven't really heard it. Now Stalman talking about this amendment, he's clearly looking for that to go wrong. With Corbyn, I think it's less clear. Because to me, that's the real moment of truth for him. I, my, my hunch is, along with what you were sort of saying before, that he would just like Brexit to be over. They want it to happen. They can pick up nothing to do with us, Gov. Not really our responsibility. But look at this catastrophic economic situation. Oh, it's exactly the kind of situation in which oppositions are elected to government because mm. the government's made such a hash of the whole thing. And he gets all of the stuff he wants. People would start uniting back together because you're out that you, it's no longer all about whether you're going to be in the EU. So all of the sort of remaining people in the party and the Lexus now are more united than they are divided by the same basic principles that they mostly hold. So that would be great for him. The trouble is, in order to do that, he would have to vote for the deal. And he therefore becomes complicit in the whole arrangement and is part of Brexit. Yeah. And if he doesn't, then great. But then what if he gets lumped with having to do Brexit, which I think is his absolute nightmare of him actually having to do it? Not just because he'd be the one doing it, but also because it's so technically complicated that Labour doesn't want to go anywhere near that thing. So the real moment of truth for the leadership, to me, is that vote. It's clear where Starmer is. My hunch is that if, if Corbyn could somehow justify it, he would like to vote for the motion. But that it's becoming increasingly difficult, as you say, to see any scenario in which he would. So, lots to look forward to over the next 12 months. (laughs) (laughs) So finally, we've decided to start a Brexit time capsule like in Blue Peter, 
which Ian won't remember because he's a, like a small boy. No, what the fuck? I remember Blue Peter. <laughs> <laughs> they had the garden and the dog, and it was like it was more school. That was exactly that. It was just like you came home from school, and it's, then it was still fucking happening. It's still going. It's still going. It's still on. But yeah. the time. But the, yeah, I don't know when they did this time capsule. But time capsules are a, a, a good idea, and each week we're going to put something in it that we'll need once we've left the EU. If we leave the EU, uh, something that we'll um, something that we'll miss. Ian, what would you? in our Brexit time capsule? Uh, it's cheaper comics. Because before, um, <laughs> before the pound... But the comics are one of those things that they come directly from... Unless it's 2008, they come directly from, from the US. So like laptops, they're those things that as soon as the pound plummeted, price of the whole thing just went up very, very quickly indeed. So, you know, my comics sort of over, overnight... Not quite overnight, it took a little bit of time for the prices to come in. just became more expensive. And seeing as this is an item that I spend quite a lot of money on on a weekly basis, that was a source of anguish for me to complement the general sense of existential despair that I was feeling at the time. I love the way you can just speak to bread and butter issues that <laughs> that keep the ordinary voter up at night. <laughs> how much is a pint of milk, Ian? Okay. Tell us, okay. how much? I actually don't really... I don't... Is it, it's probably, was it like 70p? I'm, I'm going to say 45 it's 45p. Eh? If it's not organic, yeah. 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 It's about 75p in Marks and Spencer's in North London. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. This is why you're not the figurehead of the Remain campaign. <laughs> there are many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much the end of the show. Thanks to Rosnian for enlightening us. And before we go, here's a traditional snippet of a European language. It's our guest from a couple of weeks ago, David Schneider, with a bit of Yiddish. So sein mit Masel und Hatzloche zu alle, die was willen bleiben in europäischen Verband. And now crack open an Easter egg, proper British chocolate, as we play out with Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional salute to our Patreon backers. Thank you uh, to Simon Yardley, to Wesley Osup, to Nuno Madeira Duo, that's an awesome name, uh, to Oliver Sterling, who is now worth two thirds of what he was in 2015, and Gavin O'Shea. Hello and thanks from me to Mark Rogers, Angie Whitelaw, Gemma Withers, Simon Barras and Richard Watkins. And finally, thanks from me to Hania Al-Yusuf, Roger Slater, Gavin Hogg, Benjamin Kay and Stephen Bolton. See you all next week. Remaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Ian Dunt. Studio production was by Sophie Black and the producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Remaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.